Clara speaks five languages. So if anyone's keeping score at home, she wins. The reading this morning is out of Genesis 3. So if you've got a Bible uh, or a text, then you can grab it and flip open to Genesis 3. We are talking about sin. Bum, bum, bum. I, um, and none of this will be new this morning, but we need to remind ourselves about the, the sort of ways that we think about what has gone wrong, either with our own participation or just living in the world as it is, what seems to be going wrong at any given point in time. So we're going to talk about sin this morning. So I want you to buckle up, uh, and we're going to dive into our, one of our originating texts, Genesis 3, and then we're going to move throughout scripture a little bit. Uh, but let's just, you know, Make sure we all see the word. We all take a moment to take it in. Let's take some deep breaths together. The word sin often has some kind of visceral in our gut reaction for a lot of people. Maybe because, oh, rather than make some kind of conjecture about where you all are, let's just ask the question, how did you grow up understanding sin if you grew up in a religious context, whether it was uh, Christianity or some other faith tradition, there's likely some kind of understanding of the things that we do that are wrong or the things that we're supposed to do that we don't do that are wrong. Um, which, by the way, Pastor Gretchen, thank you for your prayers with us. It was beautiful. That could just simply stand as the sermon in a lot of ways. Um, but I'll ask the question, sin. What is it that you're carrying into the space when you think about or hear the word sin? What pops into your mind? Someone be super brave. By the way, if you answer, we're not going to assume that means that it's your sin that you're saying. Right? Dan? Okay, yes. Yeah, so you could like lose your salvation right when you sin. So you've got to like make sure you confess it to get it off your chest. Um, so that God knows to say you're forgiven if you don't say sorry. Right? That's a working understanding. Which is sometimes why things like... Certain sins that you don't have time to say you're sorry for can be like mortal sins. Great. Okay. Somebody else? Some working definition? Shame. Shame. We should talk a little bit at some point about the difference between shame and guilt. Right? So guilt is the thing that you sort of, I think the good version of, ooh, I should not have, should not have done that thing. And shame is the, I'm a terrible person, like deep in my core because this thing has happened. Yeah. A violation of your own identity, that might be guilt and shame is your identity is now polluted at its core. Yeah, shame is a big part, unfortunately, of our understanding of sin. Somebody else want to give something? Yeah, so you must have been hanging out with us for a couple of years now. Alienation from God. Great, y'all hold on to that. Missing the mark. Missing the mark. So this comes from the Greek word uh, harmartia or something about. Uh, yes, missing mark comes from archery. Right, so if you're like shooting a bow and arrow and you kind of miss the target, that could be sin. Doesn't mean that you willfully did this thing wrong as much as you tried and you just didn't quite measure up. Someone else? Uh, it's a theological problem before it's a moral problem. It's, it's thinking we know better than God. Okay, it's a theological problem before it's a moral problem. Thinking that we know better than God. So there's like a pride element potentially to sin. John? violation of some kind of rule, commandment, or instruction. So in the Old Testament or in the Torah, when God gives these laws and commandments, it sort of gives us like a plumb line, and then you know when you've deviated from it. For instance, if you work on the seventh day, like that's a violation of a stated commandment. Absolutely. Anybody else want to toss anything up in here? Cynthia. Levels of sin. So there's like gradations. So um, 
For instance, maybe you like had an extra piece of chocolate cake and that sort of exists way low in the gradation of sin. Uh, unless you stole that chocolate cake from a kid at that kid's birthday party, right? And then that's maybe moves it up a layer or two. And then you can get up into sort of the like deep cruelty, right? Might sort of move us up. Okay, so these gradations. Anybody want to add anything? Perlman. Oh, like, yes, like certain things that may be deemed as sinful aren't sinful over time, like certain clothes, like sinful to wear them, and then they come back around into fashion, and all of a sudden it's not sinful anymore. Yeah, Clara. Moral dilemma? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it leads to moral dilemma. Yeah. You know, in our minds, our moral counsel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there's some kind of something, something innate in us that kind of knows at some level what's right and wrong. I've said before, like, you don't really need to be told that you shouldn't kick a puppy. So, like, there's not a verse in the Bible necessarily that says that, but we just sort of innately know there are certain things that are in and out of bounds, and we enter into these dilemmas. Sometimes it's not so clear, though. And there is a sense sometimes in church. So let's just kind of gather a few things that we've said today. Um, so if sin is itself, like, dangling over the precipice of eternity, and if you screw up or you screw up in the wrong way or you don't say sorry in the right way, then you might fall into the abyss. Well, that's terrifying. Uh, consequences that follow this. Absolutely. But what happens when you don't exactly know what's right and wrong in a situation? You've got these kind of gradations of ethics. So now all of a sudden you don't, like Perlman said, you don't always know is this thing in or out of bounds at this given moment in time. This has been a question, for instance, for Christians for a long time when it comes to war and killing and violence. Is It says pretty clearly in the text, like you shouldn't kill or you shouldn't murder. But what if you're doing it in sort of defense of a nation? Well, that's been an open question for a long time, and I'm not going to answer it for you right now, but there are these gradations. We've got kind of openings right now in different areas of our life about what might be in or out of bounds. I always grew up with this definition of sin. Sin equaled anything that was pleasurable and that you could sort of like take in. Uh, so if the, again, this gradation, it might simply be an overindulgence of food. Uh, so even like in certain menus at restaurants they'll be like sinful chocolate cake they're sort of playing with the idea that overindulgence is itself a violation but you know most of the time in church circles when we think of sin we're often thinking of something that is has to do with sex has to do with our bodies because we also carry around with this, this idea that our desires could lead us astray And so the desires, whether it's for too much food or whether it's for too much flesh or whether it's for too much money, so greed might, right, that all of these can lead us toward. And our bodies are full of hungers and thirsts and desires. So for a lot of us, for reasons of church history and longstanding theologies, um, our bodies became the site and location of sinfulness. In fact, you might have grown up with the idea of something like, like original sin, and we get that from Augustine that says that sort of we've enter into a system, we inherit a posture of brokenness and of failure. And in fact, it lives within our very flesh and blood. It's, it's actually, I would say, a, a pretty dangerous way to understand the fabric of who you are. When Gretchen prayed, she talked about 
in that last movement of prayer, the belovedness of our own identity, that we are made in the image of God and that we are loved, there is sometimes a working definition of sin that says you are wretched at your core that makes it very hard to also understand that you are beloved at your core. And those can become sort of mutually exclusive understandings of who you are. So um, I'll say this is my, this is what I grew up with. This sin, it's pleasurable consumption. And part of the problem with this is, uh, like, cake is good. Uh, an embodied life of intimacy is good. These are all like fun things. And so it starts to seem like God is just a buzzkill. So I'm going to move away from this, from this definition. I want to move us in another direction. And I think it was, um, back in the back, maybe Lorraine, did you say the alienation from God? That's where we're heading together. Uh, so let me show you a definition I've been carrying around with me. And you've heard it here before. Sin is that which fractures our primal connection and belonging. Here's why I like this definition. Is it's sin as understood in its trailing indicators. So we may not always, in any given moment in time, understand the moral dilemma we're in. Is this thing right here sinful? But there is a way to look at the effects of this thing, this action or this lack of action, and see in it either something that knits and heals, or something that fractures and alienates. And so often you can understand sin in its effects, or in its wages is the language that the Bible talks about. Like the wages of sin is death from Romans 6.23, like the Romans road you walk on, right? Wages of sin is, is death. And so death, in Paul's understanding, is death with a capital D, Death as a force in the world, not simply death as organ failure or as like sort of the cessation of breathing or brain function, but death as a moral reality in the world, often leading to a kind of physical death often, but there are all kinds of ways to die. Okay. So this is one definition. You could say it this way too. Sin is that which leads to loneliness because if we were built for connection and belonging, then when that is ruptured, it's fractured. It moves us into states of isolation. So, you know, there was the humanity, this man and woman in the garden with God, and and there's this kind of intimacy and closeness, and then this story, it ruptures, and all of a sudden you feel this kind of movement away, both from God, from one another, from the earth, and even from your interior life. So this loneliness takes over. Now, Loneliness is the very first thing in the text in Genesis that is called low tov or not good. So you know the word tov, right? Everything God creates is tov, is tov, is good, is good. And there's one thing early on that's not tov, that's low tov, and it is that the human is alone. And that loneliness is itself a cursed state, it would almost seem. And so God brings community into humanity and says, we're going to make a helper. And this helper is going to be one flesh. And this is the new relationality becomes the bedrock of existence. But sin is that which breaks that connection. Uh, one theologian centuries ago talked about the effects that sin has on our, on our bodies, on our, on our spirits and our psyches. And the word, or the phrase in Latin is um, curved in on the self. And so it's quite literally 
Like if, uh, Warren, can I borrow you? I'm not going to make you just stand with me. Uh, just come over here and stand. So, right, like, Warren and I are, right, we're in a... I'm keeping count, by the way. It's like sh- a third time. You should. You shouldn't stand or you shouldn't sit right there. So, if Warren and I, and we're, we're friends, uh, well, maybe not after this. But, like, there is a kind of face-to-faceness we will have at different times. And we're, so, like, right now, looking at each other, probably not connecting as much because all these people are watching us. But we, I'll drive all the way out an hour to meet Warren for lunch, and we'll spend an hour and a half together hanging out, and there's a connection. However, so this is like the natural posture. We're standing, we're looking. Sin does this to us. It it takes me and it removes me from Warren and it curves me in on myself so that any reaction I'm going to have with Warren is to fix any kind of obsession I have with my own stuff. It literally is like, you know, you remember Gollum from Lord of the Rings? It's like that. It it turns you in on yourself. Okay, we're still friends? Yeah, we're good, man. All right. right. (laughs) We'll see. Curvatus in the say, curved in on yourself. It is a lonely position. You can be that way, full of all kinds of people around you, and still feel desperately, desperately alone. And it's true, research bears out, that we are in states of chronic isolation and loneliness. Different populations are experiencing this in different ways. As people live longer in life, their connections are severed by death or by displacement. People move away. People move into retirement communities and they find themselves isolated from those connections. Uh, work is happening in such a way that we are no longer synced up with calendars and time. And so we work six to seven day work weeks and we no longer have times for rest and repose. We have these devices in front of us that quite literally cause us to curve in on ourselves. I've got a teacher in the front row here who knows this because she works with uh, teenagers who are embodying, literally embodying this move here of the center of the universe being sort of orbiting around, right? That is the effects of sin. And they exist within and without. All of this, the Bible talks about as sin is that which leads to death. And again, there are lots of ways that you could die. The world was made with this kind of connective tissue. And we are learning more and more now as we sort of reintegrate the new learnings in science and physics and biology and ecology that all of reality is in fact knit together. That the deeper we dive into like the subatomic and the quantum and the underbelly of the universe, we are finding there that everything is hitched to everything else. It's the language that one physicist says. And in fact, this is the way that Genesis has talked about the story for a long time. Now, we have lived in what we would maybe call like a Newtonian world, a Newtonian physics, where each of us are isolated individuals and we impinge on one another at different times. But like I'm responsible for me and you're responsible for you and you're responsible for you. And we all sort of live in these bubbles and every once in a while we'll collide together. That's actually not the best way to understand what's happening, the deeper levels of reality, right? You can spin one electron over there and then an electron somewhere in Hong Kong will spin in response that somehow reality is fused in ways that space and time don't account for. This is like quantum entanglement stuff. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but it makes a ton of sense to some of you. But what it does tell me is that relationality and connection are foundational to the way that this world 
is made. We talked about this with Trinity, that Father, Son, and Spirit is itself speaking to a kind of relational connection and generosity and flow at the foundations of the world. So sin comes in and disrupts that. The garden is this place, Garden of Eden. It's the way the Bible talks about it. It's this place where plants and vegetables and humans all live in a kind of harmony and a balance. There seems to be no violence here. There seems to be enough of whatever you need. The earth just produces in generosity. And then we receive in gratefulness. And then we give and receive. And there's this just kind of flow happening. And the center of that is this kind of pulsing joy of God that is called Tove and Tove and Tove and very Tove. It doesn't stay that way, though. You, you heard the reading and you read the reading today out of Genesis 3. It's the story mythically of the snake and of the fruit and of the trees that you're not supposed to eat from. If you've got a Bible, you can open to it. We're going to look through it for a little bit and flip around as well. God saw everything God made, and whoa, very tov. That's the way the Hebrew translates. And whoa, very good. That's Ellen Davis's translation of that word, for any of you who might know who Ellen Davis is. And whoa, it's very tov. That's what connection looks like. It looks like a supportive world, where humans aren't placed in a hierarchy and an oppressive relationship, but, but in fact we work for each other's uh, edification. It's, that's beautiful. Uh, it also looks like a world of mutuality. These are all words that resonate deep within us if we truly believe that this is how things could be, but they also feel like naive cliches that are impossible to live into, given the state of things these days. That Right, the universe is red in tooth and claw, survival of the fittest, the competition is the way that GDP moves up in the world, violence toward good ends is in fact the way toward peace. This is all the, the world we live in these days. Um, this is the effects of sin. So the, the diagram you see here comes out of this uh, sort of relational mapping system known as a genogram. Uh, where you can look at the connections between different people and these relationships with these different symbols. And so this one of connection, there's an unbroken line, but if you want to talk about a cutoff or a split or a divorce, this is the way that those get envisioned. And it's a really good understanding of the effects of sin. So part of what I want to do today is show you the four areas that I feel are the kind of primal fractures that sin is working to undo. The connections that each of us has, and it may sound a little bit like you-centric because we experience the world from our own vantage point. I don't exactly see myself, but I see the world through uh, my own eyes and my own cognition. So the ways that you are connected with everything around you or the ways that sin has resulted in your own fracturing with everything around you. That's what we're going toward right here. So, divorce. Let's look at the different areas where this takes place. The first one, and you heard these in Gretchen's prayer, is between you and God, between humanity and and the divine. Now, there's going to be four. We'll walk across them together. Between you and God, between you and others, between you and creation, and between you and yourself. And in each of these, at different times, for different people, it's going to activate and resonate, or it's going to create a pain inside of you. 
as you recognize, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really far away from that connection. So much spiritual anxiety comes from our perceived distance between us and God. Like half or more of the conversations I have on a week-to-week basis are people, brave people, courageous people, sharing honestly the distance that they feel from God at given points in time. And questions and asking for tools about how do you span that distance? What is, what is the language of prayer that will bring God close or bring me close to God? What are the set of actions, uh, the set of processes? Is it going to be, do I need to give up my firstborn child? Do I need to like stop doing this thing, indulging in this addiction? What is it that's keeping me so far from God? Because there is something in us that says, if only this distance were, were spanned, that we might be at peace. In the garden, there does seem to be this kind of physical, embodied closeness that God has with these proto-humans. And so it says in chapter 3 that after this thing has happened, that, that God is like walking in the garden in the breeze. It almost sounds like at some point they were supposed to be walking together. But God says, where are you? And now that might sound like, what do you mean, where are you? Like, of course God knows where they are. God knows where all the stuff is. God knows where all the snakes in the grass are, which is the thing I wish I knew all the time. God just knows. That's the assumption. But it seems in the text like there is some kind of gulf that is opened up. Somehow, humanity and God have moved apart. And the fracture sets in. One writer says it's like the crack that runs through everything. Now, we might say that our distancing from the source, from God, from the one who names us as beloved, is the thing that, in fact, leads to all the other disconnections, and you wouldn't be wrong to think that. They seem to happen simultaneously. They all arise out of the action, out of the grasping and reaching, out of desire that is disordered toward this fracturing end. This one is a lot easier, I think, for some of us to name the ways that we feel far from others. The ways that our relationships just don't hold together. You can feel this like most acutely if you've lived through the dissolving of a marriage or you've lived through the dissolving of a family system where like siblings become estranged from one another because like the first home that we know, even if it's a broken home, is the one of our origin. And when that system breaks down, the, the pain is so acute and so deep that it likely stays with us forever. But we have this kind of distancing happening in all kinds of ways. And actually, I'll, I'll open it up again for you um, to name. It doesn't have to be for you specifically, but, but what are the spaces and places that you can see humanity not belonging to one another, but in fact set in deep opposition and conflict with one another. Somebody just, you can name a few things. Congress, partisan politics. Yeah, there's a, the language of polarization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, somebody else. 
nationalities? Religion. Religion. Oh, man, have you ever heard Baptists of different stripes fight with one another? Man, we love that stuff. Yeah, different religions kind of cleaving. Other ways that we are set against one another. Where is the hostility crackling in this world for you? Someone else? Beliefs. Uh huh. Foundational convictions about the way the world is. Yeah. A lot of racism. Mm hmm. Tribalism. Yes. Yeah. Others. Divorce. And part of the reason that one feels so acute to me is because it's a relationship that was often born out of love and affection, and then that can result in sometimes the most deep of scars. Yeah, yeah. Which actually to me speaks to the reason that this feels so painful is because this is actually the ways that we belong to one another all the time, is this sort of intimate, we belong to each other. And and you'll see what happens like in these kind of uh, oppositional worlds that we live in where quickly we like usher you onto the blue team and you onto the red team and then you make sure you understand who plays what roles and what the wall is and what the rules are. And as soon as you try to tell these two groups that they belong to one another or if these two groups start to talk to one another, then sin as a power and a structure in this world will move in to fracture it again. We saw this, in fact, someone said racism. Uh, Mark and I are from the South, from New Orleans together. This happened in the South, where at different points in times, poor black people and poor white people, both working the land, both unable to get a foot up in the world, found each other and said, what if we, what if in fact we belong to each other? And this kind of movement started of affection. And sure enough, the power brokers in that society moved back in to remind those folks that they did not belong to one another. They set one group against the other group in an oppositional relationship. Well, and you know the rest of that story. Yeah. Between us and creation. I love the images that we have in the early part of Genesis of the way that the world is made where I'm just so used to the world as we have it, which is just so brutal at times. And we are so brutalizing on this creation. Now again, this comes out of an understanding that we are individuals outside the system and that the system exists for us to use however we would like. It's a really bad reading of that verse about dominion Right, that you should have dominion over creation. That is the language of stewardship, actually. It's the language of caring for, responsibility. But we have often taken that to mean that over there, that's mine. And whatever of that I would like to have, I'm going to take. I've said before when we lived in Oklahoma, there was this tendency to like multiple times, both in the Dust Bowl era and then also in the era of fracking, this need to take as much as you could from the earth, as much as you could without any sense of rest or Sabbath. They kept planting and planting and planting and then uh, tilling and tilling. They wouldn't turn over their crops into other kinds of seed and it just ruined the ground. It was greed embedded in agricultural practices. And the earth quite literally broke in the Dust Bowl. And if I've read stories, it felt like hell to be there. It's happening again now with the extraction 
of natural gas and oil, where fracking itself is causing the earth to shake and earthquakes. Like, this is biblical stuff. This is what happens in the Old Testament whenever there is sin present in the community. The earth, the ground, wretches. In the text it says, like, because y'all did this thing, because you reached past your limits and you took in what was not for you to have, this knowledge of good and evil, the ground will no longer produce for you out of generosity, but you will be set in opposition and antagonism toward the earth and you will work it by sweat and it will throw up thistles and thorns. We're living through another wave of a great extinction where we're losing more and more species than we can even discover. The earth is changing in ways radically fast and it is highly because of our own need to take and take and take. It's in pain. Now, we can back that up. Like, so, okay, yes, we're losing chunks of ice in the north and the south. Animals on the edge of existence are being forced into extinction. Populations on this earth that live in, like, just on the edge of desertification are moving all the way into desert lands. And so the refugee crisis has something to do with the way we treated the earth. The fracturing fractures across all of these areas, right? This is how sin works. It isn't just that you and I feel like shameful. It's that the whole system collapses. This is the effect of sin and the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to look out on the world and recognize the death patterns that we have participated in quite willingly. In our neighborhood, I'll, I'll just bring it home. In our neighborhood, we've had these two coyotes. And these coyotes are fully creatures of the fall. They are the living worst. They ate everybody's little dogs and everybody's little cats. And there were no more squirrels and there was no more raccoons. They were just like, it was just these two coyotes that ruled the neighborhood. And we have a little Jack Russell who is... Um, well, she ran away for an hour yesterday, so we had some concern that at some point Gertie would get eaten by the coyotes. And so we started scheming, like, what are we going to do about these coyotes? And then you get online and you read, because online is where you find all good things. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's all these different ways to trap and kill a coyote, and I thought, I don't know what to do. And we were talking with the kids about, you know, how do you take care of the dog? And Ruthie said... Do not shoot the coyotes, Dad. I was like, she just, she had this like, she had this sense of like, they also are creatures of God, and so you shouldn't shoot the coyotes. Uh, you say no. Here's the thing, I don't, I didn't shoot the coyotes, that's not where the story is going, so don't worry. Only because they didn't show back up in my backyard when I had the pellet gun. But, I did have this concern that these coyotes were set in an oppositional relationship to all of the humans in this neighborhood. And, and these hills and this valley existed for these creatures before we ever got here, so we could also name that as a reality. Uh, and sure enough, someone in the neighborhood has poisoned them. That's the way that they've chosen to deal with that coyotes. It is like the most painful way. It, to me, is the most cowardly way. If somebody would have taken and shot them, that would have been generous, would have been quick. But this is like, this isn't working. What if we just throw some laced meat over the fence and just wait? And so now these two animals are like just stumbling around our, our neighborhood, slowly dying. It's, so it's on a small scale, the ways that we just aren't working 
with creation, and it's also on the largest of scales. Yo, I, I am just naming stuff we already know that we are all living within. I'm trying to point it toward sin as a source. But this is just the way the world is these days. It's not like it's a surprise to us or to God or to Christ or to the gospel. It just is the way that things are. And the last one is you and yourself. I'm not going to ask you this question to answer it physically. But if I did ask a show of hands, who is unhappy with themselves? Who in here, when you look in the mirror, feels a sense of disappointment, of letdown, of people who, oh, you know, I thought my life was going to be this thing. I thought my career was going to be about this. I thought my children were going to always treat me in these ways. I thought that my marriage, my relationships, I thought that my place in these systems was going to be more important. I thought I was going to be more handsome and more wealthy and more generous and more kind and more peaceful. And you, right, this is not, there are people who know this feeling where you are the disappointment in the world. The world is disappointing, but it's probably your fault. And if anyone knew who you really were, well, they just, they would, they would for sure leave you alone. And they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. And you have to struggle every day with the reality that this is how you've been made. And so it's better just to leave all of these relationships, to duck out, to back up, to isolate yourself, to turn in. Right? Folks struggling with addictions that are corroding their insides out of a sense of self-loathing. You talk to people who are stuck in destructive patterns and ask them, like, why, why are you doing this? And they'll say, I don't know. Because we don't know ourselves. Those early humans in the garden, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And naked does not simply mean they didn't have any clothes. It meant that they were fully out in the world. They were themselves, purely exposed, and vulnerable, and they were at peace. And immediately, when that fracturing happens, they withdraw and they clothe and they hide, and they aren't just hiding from God, and they aren't just hiding from one another, they are hiding from the mirror. They are hiding from the reflection, from themselves. Because the inside, it gets broken too. And this is what happens with sin, is it is not simply out there, and it is not simply in here, but it is the sort of joining of the breakage that happens without and the breakage that happens within, and all of that fracturing, it moves us further and further away. I remember, I don't know how long it was ago, I may have mentioned this before, Corey, you always tell me, you should write down the things you tell folks in church so you don't keep telling the same story, so this might be the same story. Uh, but I remember it was when Gertie was sleeping with us and, and I remember feeling the sense of peace because like Gertie was, was sleeping in the bed and so the dog's aware. If anything happens, like she'll bark and let us know. And plus, like I've got my partner there. So there's this kind of sense of comfort 
um, but I thought about how our neighbors on one side we really care for and our neighbors on the other side we know well and across the street we know well. we felt surrounded by community, by people who had our backs. And it was a really good way to fall asleep. But I thought about what happens whenever uh, sort of your goal in life is accumulation of resources and wealth. And you can get a bigger house. When you get a bigger house, you've got to get a bigger yard and a bigger fence. And usually you set that fence farther away from your bedroom. And in between that fence and your bedroom, you place layers and layers of protection. And maybe you get in a neighborhood that also has a gate so that those people are out there and you're in here. And before you know it, you are like island off, right? From any kind of meaningful connection. And anxiety is heightened because you are alone in that castle. This distance right here is a problem. It's a big problem. Because what happens in this distance is you start to get afraid. Warren and I sitting, standing face to face, but at some point when this thing breaks and we start to move away from each other, we'll be far enough away that we won't look any more like friends, but we will start to look like enemies. And then in that antagonism, we will start to take up arms and then we'll start to place barriers between one another. Restraining orders. Legal agreements. This distance invites anxiety and fear and worry and what it causes us to do is fortify our position it's to build up walls between those connections the last thing i would ever do is believe in god you might hear somebody say or those people if only i'm using wall here both metaphorically and quite literally Because you can feel the way that sin is working its best or its worst in our own culture to teach us quite well who belongs and who doesn't. And it is so tempting, it is so tempting to believe those stories. (laughs) Who told you that you were going to die if you ate that fruit? The serpent says. God told you that? You're not going to die if you eat it? Just try a little Yeah, this is the world we live in, island off from connections that would make us whole. The language in the civil rights movement was the language of the beloved community or your dearest of neighbors. This is the language of the gospel, but it is foreign in today's speech patterns that are always predicated on antagonism and mutual violence. This is the work of sin in the world. Next week, we're going to talk about salvation. This week, I wanted to show you just a comprehensive way to understand what has happened. The Bible spins this out over time across the rest of these chapters of Genesis, where first it's the fracturing of all of these areas, but it's just like the beginning of the fracturing. And then what happens is the humans are moved east of the garden, and so they they move further away from God's presence. And then they have children of their own, and those children end up killing one Kills the other, Cain and Abel. And so you have this deep fracturing between those two. And then if you move toward the flood story, the very fabric of creation undoes itself back into the state of chaos and wildness and waste. The whole thing, it just keeps moving further and further apart. So what do we do about this? 
Well, one last story, and then I want to show you what Jesus leads us to do. And this story, I think, it speaks of the Jesus move in the midst of a sinful world. Um, so, like, right now, right in Hong Kong, there are all these protests that are happening around issues of freedom, of speech and of movement, and of person, and this sort of striving for representative democracy inside of their governmental system. There's all kinds of violence happening, and there's oppositional parties moving in different directions. Um, but I was watched this story on uh, the BBC out of the UK, and they were talking about this group of, uh, of Christians. And they wear these yellow vests, and they've got body armor on, and they go out together, and then they convene, and they move out in groups of seven. And so seven folks will go out together. And their goal, they said, is to moderate the violence between the two groups. So wherever the wall is present, wherever that hostility is most crackling, these groups of seven, they will just span out and they will stand between the police and between the protesters and they will create a kind of shield of of presence. They've been shot, they've been beat, they've been targeted, but they are moving directly into the center of the space of alienation. They're placing their very bodies in that space. And they're saying, this is the place where we are going to bring healing to the world. There was an interview and asked the lead pastor of this community the why. And he said, well, those police belong to us just as much as the protesters belong to us. There's this sort of falling out of belonging that has happened. But the deeper reality is that we are not, in fact, enemies one to another. It's a dangerous stance to take. I'll also say it's probably not the wisest of things to preach about whenever your sermons are being recorded. Um, But we will name the space where Christ is present, regardless of who is listening. This is what Christ does. If you've got a Bible and you want to flip to it, it's Ephesians. I'll end here. Chapter 2. And it looks like this. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant. You had no hope and you were without God in this world. But now Christ, who was once far off, and you who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And he has abolished the law with his commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. How is peace brought into the world according to the gospel? By violence, by power, or by surrender? might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him both of us have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then, and now listen, listen to this part, this for then, for those of you who feel so far off from these connections. So then you are no longer 
strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. I've been toying with the different ways we explain our community of faith to the world, and there are two phrases that I keep coming back to. That we are naming Christ wherever we find Christ, and we are undoing sin's wages wherever we find them. And so when we gather in this space, or when we leave out of this space into the world, our calling is to name and identify the places where Christ is at work, even when it surprises us. And then to name with a certain kind of precision and clarity where sin is at work, And to move into that space as a presence of Christ. Yes, the walls feel and look very real. We can actually put a number on the walls these days. A price. Christ is present in the shattering of our divides. This is the place that we're invited into. Yes, we all live and move and have our being in a world that is broken within and without. But God says it doesn't have to be this way. And in fact, it was not originally this way. So next week, we're going to talk about salvation, about the different ways we understand this picture, which is that all that has been broken apart is being pulled back together in the person and work of Christ. Friends, this is our story. May you feel brave enough to move back toward one another, back toward God, back toward this ground, and back into peacefulness with yourself. The work has been done in Christ so that you no longer have to exist all alone. So welcome home, whether you believe it or not. Would you pray with me? God, settle us into the relationships you have given us, that we would believe that we are safe, that we have found family, that we can live at peace with this earth, with ourselves, with our enemies, and with you. Forgive us for when we have contributed to the breaking. Forgive us when we have had small imagination for the possibility of the healing. Forgive us when we are afraid to name the spaces where you are active because we are fear we are not allowed to talk about those things around company. Invite us into true speeches, patterns, language that would describe the world as you would have it to be. And the world as we find it is not the way you would have it to be. But we believe desperately that far more can be mended than we know. So heal this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Amen.